Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's January the 18th, 2022, the day after Martin Luther King Day in the United States, where I am on the West Coast in San Francisco, as always. Uh, freedom, or perhaps unfreedom, is dominating the headlines today. Uh, North Korea is back in the news. Uh, we're trying to figure out North Korea. Very hard to understand it. Uh, apparently, North Korea has filed missiles again, and according to the BBC, an unusual flurry of tests. Um, According to the AP, their return to brinksmanship, that word meaning, I guess, they're testing us, we're testing them, we don't understand them. North Korea epitomizes then unfreedom. Um, we're trying to understand who they are or what they are. Here we have the image for people watching of Kim Jong-un, uh, the leader of this unfree place. We are being encouraged by, again, experts, whoever they are, to not take these threats at face value, whatever the threats are. North Korea, of course, is a rotten place, the bastion of unfreedom. Another headline today is about a uh, $240,000 award to the family of a man who was captured and then died in North Korea. Meanwhile, another interesting headliner, a North Korean defector returning home. Uh, he had gone to the South and now has returned. When I was growing up in the UK in the 1970s, the equivalent of North Korea, or perhaps the European sister state, was Albania, a little country that most of us don't know very much about. We, didn't, we knew nothing about it in the 1970s in the southeast, southeastern pocket of Europe. Um, uh, in the Balkans, um, most people still don't know very much about Albania. Back then, it was run by a man called Enver Halil Hoxha, uh, last hardline communist in um, in in Europe. Uh, he fell out with the Russians, the Yugoslavs, and I think eventually even the Chinese. He was the ultimate Marxist-Leninist purist. Um, and most of us didn't know much about him. He was a curious character. He even eliminated um, religion, which I thought was quite an accomplishment. Growing up in London in 1970, I thought that was a rather nice idea. Of course, he wasn't a very nice man. Today, we're talking in part about Hodja and Albania. My guest today is Leah Upi. She's the author of free, a child and a country at the end of history. It's a, a wonderfully rich, thoughtful, provocative autobiography of growing up in Hodges, Albania. Uh, but it's a two-part book. It's about growing up in Hodges, Albania, and then the fall of Hodger and the consequences. It's, I think, ironically called uh, free. And Leah is joining us from Hamburg in Germany, where she's doing a fellowship. Lee, I apologize for the rather long-winded introduction. Um, is there anything similar between Hodges, Albania, and um, 
contemporary North Korea? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I've never been to North Korea. Like most people would not have been to Albania. And I guess a lot of North Koreans, we don't see a lot of them. We don't meet a lot of them because they don't really, they're not allowed to travel in the way in which people were not really allowed to travel when they left uh, or to leave Albania. Um, it was really dangerous. So in the sense that it's a small country that calls itself Marxist-Leninist, that uh, pays tribute to, to Marx and to Marxist principles, that is fighting an anti-capitalist fight, and is very isolated from the rest of the world, including other allegedly socialist states like, um, you know, other more moderate countries like Cuba or whatever, China or Vietnam or whatever you want to call socialist still these days. So I guess there are some, yeah, I, I often think of North Korea and I think of Albania as having been the North Korea of Europe. I think the parallel is not mistaken. I particularly thought of you with this, uh, the headline about the North Korea defector returning home. Um, this relationship going back to the past is very prominent in your book. Maybe I was being a little unfair, but is there an element of nostalgia for Hodges Albania in your book? Or is it a nostalgia for your childhood or for your family or for the purity of a world before capitalism? Um, I would say no, actually, to both of them. I think it's more that the book is written in an ironic and what might seem like a more light touch style than what you're used to reading about these countries and these extremely um, isolated and harsh state socialist contexts. And I think the book doesn't have maybe some of that doesn't it doesn't or at least doesn't start with that. It's got uh, an account towards the end of part one, which is the part about socialism, where I also talk about the political persecution and the deportations and the kind of the heart of the political censorship. But because it's written from the point of view of a child who for the first half of the book is not really aware of that political censorship, and it's written in the voice of that child, it's got that innocence, which I think for some people can be mistaken for nostalgia for the country or for nostalgia for that kind of system but i certainly don't think of it uh, or at least i don't think of the political parts of it with nostalgia there is obviously parts of one's childhood and there is a kind of normality connected to childhood in a happy family which i guess a lot of people are nostalgic about regardless of where they come from but i don't think it's in any way inherently connected to uh, to hoja or to hojaism or to the whatever was going on in albania at that time it's a highly political book um you say that you had a happy family. It, it's a wonderful um, remembrance of your family, a complex family, an aristocratic Greek grandmother, um, a leftist father, uh, a kind of neo-Thatcherite mother. Was it a happy childhood? Was it a happy family? Um, well, I mean, insofar as um, a lot of families have conflicts and have issues and have disagreements, and sometimes, you know, people with opposite characters share a family, um, it, it had its issues, but I remember it as a very loving family, actually. So from, from everyone, I remember being looked after very well. I certainly remember the hardship, but I also remember my parents went out of their way to try and accommodate me. I was very picky, very difficult child. And uh, I was especially picky with food. And of course, you didn't have a lot of choice of food back then in, in communist Albania. There were long queues for, ev for everything. And there was a lot of scarcity. 
and I remember my parents really going out of their way to try and accommodate this very, what now seems to be very difficult preferences, which I sometimes think, I don't know if I would be as good a parent with my children if I was living under such material constraints. And, you know, if I had a child who kept saying, oh, I don't want jam, but it seems jam is the only thing that you can actually buy for breakfast, then and they went out of their way. My dad went in the, in the villages to try and find honey, which is more difficult to find. And so all of these things in a society where you're surrounded by consumer goods, I think they're obviously easier to accommodate. But in a society where you don't have that choice, you I think now I appreciate a lot more what my parents did for me. Um, and now the headlines today, uh, Leah, is uh, the unrest, political unrest in Kazakhstan. Uh, I was just actually there earlier this year. Again, a, a very odd country, in probably in some ways like Albania or North Korea, although slightly more open. Uh, the president, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, seems to have managed the transition from socialism to free market capitalism. Um, and of course, when one thinks of Kazakhstan, one thinks of Borat, when I was reading your book, I mean, your book is not Borat, obviously, and it's it's a more serious book, and it's but there is an element of the sort of, if you like, the collective village of people being happy together that I took out of the book. Is is that fair? That that you know, everyone, some of the more moving or interesting or memorable scenes in the book, and there are many, by the way, um, concern the way in which everyone in pre in, in communist uh, Albania, you, you worked together. You had a neighbor and one of the, the, the more memorable scenes is the experience of the Coke can where uh, people fell out and then got back together. People, you, your home were other people's homes, other people, your neighbor's home was your home. Was there a collective element in the experience of growing up in, in, in Hoxha's Albania? Mm. I think there was a sense of uh, un, uh, solidarity that was very basic. And I think it's in part because this was not a society that pervaded was pervaded by markets and by consumer goods and was also a very interactional society in the way in which a lot of more developed, more modern societies are not. They have an element of anonymity, which makes it always... Uh, reactions and interactions between neighbors or between colleagues become a bit more distant and less immediate. So I think there was a sense of immediacy in human relations, which was reflected in a lot of aspects of daily life. One was the sharing of goods, even though there was, as I say, great scarcity, there were lots of queues, the way in which people, even in a queue, they were actually coming together and trying to find ways and mechanisms of supporting each other in the way in which people looked after children. So remember, this was a society in which people weren't really allowed to, uh, for example, perform private services like babysitting. You, would, you wouldn't ask for someone to be babysitting your children and pay them because they couldn't make money like that. And so people then just stepped in and, and gave this more spontaneous solidarity, which wasn't mediated by money. And so I suspect these are some of the things that I talk about that society before it became marketized, before it became capitalist which had this immediate element of solidarity between neighbors and between um, colleagues and between friends at school. Of course, there was another side to it as well, which was the fear of the state police and the fact that there were secret services as well. And so sometimes both sides were present in the same time. On the one hand, you had this solidarity. On the other hand, there was solidarity, but also mutual suspicion because someone could be uh, reporting on you 
on behalf of the secret services. And so it was often a question of also navigating social relationships in a way so as to find out who you had to be careful with and who you could be more reliant on. So it was an interesting paradoxical mix of, as I say, a very uh, society which had lots of solidarity and support and friendship and also these one-on-one interactions but also against the backdrop of a highly uh, rigid totalitarian state marked by censorship, which was also present. And of course, all told through, for the most part, or certainly in the first part of the book, the eyes of a, what, a 12-year-old girl? Um, Did you have models for that? When I was reading it, I thought of the tin drum, but I couldn't think of any nonfiction books. Were you thinking, I mean, there's an element of I mean, it's all true, of course, the book, uh, Free a Child and a Country at the End of History. Um, but were you using any novelistic models or techniques? It certainly reads, and I mean this in, in the best way possible, it reads like a very fine novel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I don't, I don't, I didn't have any immediate novels, but I've always been very drawn to uh, 19th century Russian novels. Yes. And- I'm a very particularly big fan of Dostoevsky. And one of the things that I really like about Dostoevsky is that, uh, and one of the things I've always appreciated from a literary perspective, is that in Dostoevsky, you don't have an authorial voice that is superimposed on the different characters. In other words, you have lots of different characters, each with a, their own personality, and they all speak their own truths. And the author doesn't make a big effort to try and give, them, give the reader their perspective. And I always like that, which, of course, with the child at the center of the book. And so you have something like that in The Idiot, for example, in Dostoevsky, where you have this, again, sort of naive character that observes everything and explains social dynamics. And uh, and in my book, I think that's, in a way, easier because the central character is a child who uh, is not mature enough to have mature political opinions of about the society in which they live. So they just observe and record different perspectives. And that was, to me, important because I wanted this to be, it was a book on freedom, and I wanted it to be a book in which different characters in the book, my mother, my father, my grandmother, have different perspectives on freedom. And I wanted the book to let to reflect these different perspectives without the author really resolving them or without the author telling the reader, look, this is the one that is most adequate. I think there's points in which maybe you can guess that my grandmother is the more uh, strongly in- influential figure on me. But in general, I think all perspectives are given equal weight. And that's because I think I like those literary models in which you have what is called a polyphony of uh, different characters and different perspectives. Yeah, you have a wonderful reference to Bob Dylan at one point in the book. And there's a sort of a Dylan-esque quality to, 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 as you say, the narrative where Dylan never really promotes himself, a sort of a multiplicity of voices. It's a wonderful work of art. Uh, very different from y- your your other work. The one thing that I would have liked a little more on, and this isn't a criticism, I mean, it's a short book, you can't do everything, was more on the city that you grew up in. Um, and I, I hope I pronounced this right, Dores, which mm-hmm. is the second city of Albania, the coastal city, an old Roman city. Um, tell me a little bit about Dores, growing up there. Was it different from Tirana? I'm guessing that Tirana was much harsher, much more political, um, and a much uglier place. Yeah, um, it was uh, it, it was certainly dif- different from Tirana. First of all, it was on the coast, and this is something that uh, 
it made a lot of difference because if you have a life where you don't have a lot of attractions and you can't travel a lot, uh, if you were there in the summer and you have this long three-month summer holiday, it makes a big difference to be living by the sea because that, as a child, is a natural thing to do, is go to the beach and, and hang out with your friends and your parents. And, of course, we were also free to roam around as children. We weren't regulated or controlled by adults, so you had to, I had a lot of freedom to just go to the beach with my friends. It's an ancient city with a lot of history, uh, it started as a kind of Greek uh, Hellenic colony, and then it had a Roman period, and then a Venetian period, an Ottoman period. Then eventually the Italians came, and then you know it became the kind of communist, and then the, then the Nazis, and then became the part of socialist Albania. But it's certainly a city with a lot of history. And in fact, uh, as an adult, I was surprised to discover that it's mentioned in uh, Aristotle's Politics as uh, the uh, as the one of the main oligarchies in the Hellenic world. And it's actually also mentioned in Thucydides in the Peloponnesian War as one of the reasons for the start of the Peloponnesian War, because Epidamnus, which was the name for Duras before, was uh, one of the kind of most prominent oligarchies. And so it was a fight between the oligarchs of Epidamnus that started the Peloponnesian War. So this is all stuff that I discovered very late, but I grew up with the amphitheater, with the Venetian tower, with all these cultural references around me, which were very different from Tirana, which was a, a more recent town that was founded later and more modern. It had a mosque, but it didn't have all these uh, cultural sites with layers in them. Yeah, um, so it's rather then, like Kazakhstan with Almaty and then the capital city, which is named after uh, Nazarbayev. Um, I'm speaking with uh, Leah Upi, the uh, author of a wonderful new book, Free. It's just out in the US. It's already out in the UK, Free. A Child and a Country at the End of History. Um, you mentioned, uh, Leah, that you use an ironic voice and that the, the child isn't serious, but you're serious. You grew from a 12-year-old. Now you're a professor of political philosophy at, uh, at uh, London School of Economics. After the break, I want to Fast forward from Leah, the 12-year-old, to Leah, the grown-up political philosopher. We can talk more politics, the fall of communism in Albania, the civil war, the economic crisis, and your definition of socialism. So hold tight. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub 
live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Leah Upi, the author of Free, a wonderful new book about life both in communist Albania and in the transition to capitalism, to free market capitalism in the 1990s. Uh, Leah is joining us from Hamburg. She's also a professor of political philosophy at the London School of Economics. Um, Leah, the fall of communism, of course, is normally treated as a, an end of history kind of event in which everyone becomes liberal. Your subtitle of the book, A Child and a Country at the End of History, is of course meant ironically because in 1990, when communism fell in Albania, uh, was anything but the end of history. What happened in 1990? So the first thing that happened that was different was the uh, political pluralism that arrived. Up to that point, we had a one-party system and a one-party state, and uh, which was governed and controlled in the name of communist ideology. And so the first change was political. The society was democratized, and you could have free elections. You have a multi-party system with lots of different parties running uh, for power and contesting each other. And then after that, very quickly, there was what was called at the time uh, structural reforms, which was the idea that this society needed to open up to free market economy. And since it was a society that was controlled by the state with um, a state with an economic sector that was all in the hands of the state, it meant very quick privatization and liberalization of all the state enterprises, opening up to free markets, deregulating trade. And uh, this had to be done according to the experts of the World Bank or the IMF, the foreign experts that came to Albania. Right. Yeah, at one point in the book, you... I'm not sure if you say it explicitly, but you seem to me at least to suggest that the the rigid ideology of Hodges kind of peasant style Marxism was replaced by the rather rigid ideology of free market neoliberal Milton Friedman style economics. Was that what you were saying? Is that what you believe? Yes, yes, it was. And it, I think it also is what happened really de facto. So what happened was that overnight, uh, this was not a society unlike Hungary or the Czech Republic or other socialist states in, of the Soviet sphere of influence, which had an internal dissident movement that had been developing throughout the 80s. This was a society which had such a high degree of, of control and of uh, punishment of dissidents that we didn't have any dissident movement, really. So what that meant was that the, the change came from the top and uh, with some engagement from some intellectuals, but at the very end when it was almost very safe to do so, while it was unsafe, this didn't, no, nothing was changing. In fact, in Albania, things changed a year after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so the, what it meant was that there was this ideology that everyone was subscribing to up to that point, uh, which was, you know, Marxist, Leninism and, and so on. And... Overnight, there came market economy with its new ideologues. And so literally, I remember people burning books of Marx and telling each other, this is what you really need to read now, Hayek and Friedman and Popper and so on. 
So, uh, and that was one part in the kind of the cultural change. So at the universities, for example, or in all these academic centers, the old books were thrown away and the new books were coming to replace them. And they were endorsing the sort of neoliberal. Uh, Leah, you're, uh, as I said, you're a political philosopher, teaches now um, at the London School of Economics. Um, I've got Fukuyama coming on the show um, next month or the month after he has a new book out on democracy. He, of course, wrote The End of History and The Last Man. To what extent do you believe that the work of people like Fukuyama, of course, his notion of the end of history was meant ironically as well, but to what extent were liberal triumphalists, perhaps like Fukuyama, responsible for some of the things that happened in Albania? Um, I don't know if they were individually responsible. I think there was a And in the zeitgeist, the, um, you, yeah, you, you, you mentioned the kind of... Owl of Minerva. There's lots of jokes about Hegel in the book who you call Yeah, right. Hegel. So I think there was a spirit of the 90s, which was very much this idea that since all these socialist states had been defeated, there was no... And, and the ideologies that they represented had also been defeated as systems of thought. Uh, and the hostility in these societies to that body of thought, I think, effectively was identified as a rejection of everything that came from that tradition. And so, in a way, the only survivor ideologically was a kind of liberal body of thought, and that was the one that was promoted without a lot of criticism, or at least with the idea that even if there was criticism, there wasn't really going to be an alternative. And so this was the spirit in which these reforms that I mentioned came to Albania, especially the economic ones, this idea of shock therapy, which was, it's going to be painful, it will require a lot of sacrifices from people, but there is no alternative, they need to speed up, there is no other uh, possibility ideologically, politically, economically, culturally, that they could inspire themselves by. And so I think that's what the um, it's what the zeitgeist was effectively that, the idea that the rejection of state socialism effectively meant the victory of this neoliberal ideology. And this was, uh, again, you mentioned the irony in the, in the writing. The title is deeply ironic. So really, it was anything but free. What you're suggesting is that Hodges Albania certainly wasn't free, but post-Hodges Albania wasn't much freer. Is that what you were arguing in the book? Yeah, I mean, I was arguing that I wasn't really comparing these two systems to each other, but I was comparing... But you're implicitly, I mean, it's the reader is inevitably going to compare the two. The book's mm -hmm. divided into two. It's about, you know, pre-Hodges uh, Albania and then post-Hodges Albania. So it's hard not to compare the two. Mm -hmm. So what I was interested in, in establishing was this idea that you have two systems, each of which comes with their own ideology, each of which makes a promise to bring freedom to the people, and also comes with a certain idea of their sacrifices that are required to arrive at this ideal of freedom. And in the end, in both of these systems, you'll find forms of unfreedom. And the one that is more contentious is perhaps the second part, because the first part, nobody will dispute that you know there was unfreedom in communist Albania. But I think what is more contentious is the fact that uh, even in the second one, I suggest there are... Uh, there's a sense in which freedom has delivered for some people, but for a lot of other people, it hasn't delivered. And in fact, you know, the example of migration that I make in the second part of the book, I think is a very good case on point, this idea that in socialism, you weren't free to leave the country and to emigrate because you'd be shot at the border. And then after 1990, you were free to leave. Nobody, your own state wasn't preventing you. You still get a passport. But at that point, this coincided with European states erecting borders and stopping people from coming in because at that point they became a threat to their own ways of life 
or at least what they were claiming was their own way of life. And so in a way, you could leave the country, but you weren't allowed to enter another country. And many people lost their lives making these dangerous crossings. Yeah, and your mother even uh, fled. And I thought that was a really good point, actually, about dissidents were rewarded and idolized for fleeing communist states. And then as soon as communism fell, nobody wanted the refugees, particularly the Albanian refugees, going to Italy like your mother and your brother who successfully yeah. left. Yeah, and, there, and that, that there was racism and there were, you know, social issues and issues of integration, all of which suggested that this freedom hadn't really delivered for people. Even this basic freedom of movement, which we had been promised, in fact, wasn't working. One of the areas in the book that I found really interesting that I didn't know much about, uh, I'd sort of, was the Albanian civil war of 1997 as a consequence of the pyramid financial schemes which bankrupted your family like many Albanian families. What happened in 1997 in Albania? Uh, so basically throughout the 90s because of an underdeveloped financial sector there had been an emergence of these companies which were promising very high returns for uh, savings of people. And of course this also went along the new spirit of capitalism, this idea that everyone was responsible for producing their own wealth and also that what capitalism was made of was saving and investing money and then re-entering the kind of circulation of money circle circuit. And so people basically invested their savings and they were promised these returns. And at the beginning, because it was a pyramid scheme, at the beginning it was working. And so the more it worked from, from the, for the bottom of the pyramid, the more people then invested their savings and some even sold their houses until eventually you got to the top of the pyramid and the uh, companies became insolvent, at which point a lot of the people who had actually put their savings got very, very angry. Some of them had lost their houses, as I say. So uh, there was a general anger and... Uh, looting came and people started assaulting uh, depots with weapons from the old communist period and uh, they armed themselves in an effort to overthrow the government. It wasn't clear. It was just basically a general state of anarchy in which everyone was shooting and the state had lost. Yeah, it, it reminds me again, coming back to the title of the book, course. Free, it was the promise of free money, which of course is the ultimate uh, lie. It kind of reminded me a little bit about the, the craziness now over crypto currency, the idea, well, it's sort of like free money. Right. What was being yeah. promised in the 90s in Albania with these pyramid schemes was free money. And of course, it was anything but free. Um, the irony, the irony of ironies in your book is that growing up in Leninist, Marxist Albania, your family was persecuted. I think one of your grandfathers was certainly one of them went to jail. One may have died at the hands of Hodges secret police. You yourself became uh, if not a Marxist, certainly uh, a, a, a political philosopher on the left. Your father, who's a fascinating character, unfortunately no longer alive, uh, called you a brigatista. He was, a, a, I guess, a, a leftist romantic. Uh, your, your description of him was remarkable. He only idealized political figures and movements which failed or leaders who died. Um, and yet, at the same time, he was not particularly happy that you became a political philosopher on the left. Um, what do you think he would have made of this book, as well as your grandmother, who's no longer alive? These are the probably, along with your mother, they're the, the two central characters in the book. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can only go from what my mother... None, none of them would have agreed with my politics, I think. They would have come from different angles at it. But they Even probably, your father, you think? 
Um, I don't know. With my father, it's difficult because he had this romantic sizing of political movements of a kind of revolutionary but uh, isolated kind, which I find I find the left interesting if it's institutionalized and it's rooted in institutions. And I think democracy only works if there's political parties, if there is a contestation of ideas. And so I find this kind of more anarchist left, which yeah, he the was red brigades, the, the violence. He sort of seemed to like almost idealize yeah, the red brigades or anti-system anti-system but also individualized and also a sense of rejection but without really committing to an alternative and to the idea that after, with every alternative there's a sense of costs that you need to undertake and compromises that you need to make and I think he was uncompromising in, in a way that was different from I think how I feel about many uh, leftist movements so all of them would have had their their criticisms but I like to think that like my mother did they would understand where I'm coming from because in a way even though it's a book which comes with a political message at the end, I think the core message throughout the book is one of skepticism and criticism of ideology and of the way in which things are packaged for us and which tries to encourage readers to think with their own uh, mind, with think, think for themselves in a way and think in an open way and, and with an enlarged point of view. And I think they would have agreed with that because I think that channels the commitment that all of them had to this idea of freedom embedded in, in criticism, but also embedded in a conception of the human being that is someone who is not just for themselves, not just for their own interests, but also for other people and tries to think about you know, what a moral perspective requires and what a moral society looks like. And so I think they would have agreed with the core idea of, of the book and with the yearning for freedom. And that's why I end the book by saying that I want it to be, in a way, I see my endeavors now intellectually as much as politically, as a way of making sure that their sacrifices don't go to waste and that their um, ways of understanding their own histories and their own biographies are not forgotten, but are carried through in a project of reflection and reconciliation and continuation of uh, critical inquiry. Yeah, I want to get to that. I want to get to your definition of socialism and the, the fix to all this. But I want to talk very briefly. I, I found the most interesting figure in the book, actually, your mother. Uh, she was the chess champion of Albania. Um, she always carried a weapon with her. Sometimes you have a, a section where you describe how she had to stab someone who was touching her inappropriately. She was also a sort of proto-Margaret Thatcher. Um, we had, um, and when it comes to chess, um, it reminded me of this wonderful quote from Edmund Fawcett. I don't know if you know his books on liberalism and conservatism. Um, but Fawcett has this wonderful quote, which I often use in the show. Were politics chess, liberals had white, they moved first. Conservatives had black, they countered liberalism's opening moves. In time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives who began as anti-moderns came to master modernity, for the right was in telling ways the stronger contestant. Uh, you write a little bit about chess. How can the left play this game of political chess in the 21st century how mm. can they move ahead of not just conservatives but political liberals um i think maybe in a way by having the courage of their convictions and not playing defensively so you know i feel sometimes the, the problem with the left is that it's always countering someone else's move but not really articulating its own proposals very so clearly. To have its own, its own 
concrete game plan to move first rather than second. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And to also have a vision of change, and which is a, a bold vision of change and a vision of a sort of new system that we need to move to to overcome the problems of the system that we live in. But also with a sense of the compromises that are required to do that and of what is stacked against the left in the contemporary world. So sometimes I feel that the left is not sufficiently aware, actually, of the difficulties of realizing this project politically and not sufficiently courageous in articulating that project and promoting it and putting it forward in a constructive way. So I think one has to have the courage of one's own convictions but also an awareness of the compromises and the difficulties and uh, a sense of the institutions and of the experiences that one needs to be aware of to learn from the past as opposed to be held hostage by the past. You begin with a quote from Rosa Luxemburg, wonderful quote. Um, Human beings do not make history of their own free will, but they make history nevertheless. So it's a, a sort of a remix of, of Marx. Um, is that the core message in the book, that we all make our histories, that we perhaps aren't quite in as much control as we'd like to be, but we're all ultimately responsible? We all do indeed have agency. Is that what your definition of socialism is? I think there is certainly, uh, I think there's, that is a very strong part of the message. Part of the uh, one, the, the starting point is, I think, to suggest that in any system, however oppressive, however totalitarian it is, there is no way in which that system can com completely crush human dignity and destroy human morality. And if there is a kernel of morality, if there's a kernel of goodwill in everyone, that should act as the basis on which we construct critiques of society. So you and see, you are, you're, you're channeling your father rather than your mother. Your father always believed in the best of people, your mother in the worst of people. Yeah, I think that is actually true. So I think you do, as a socialist, I feel you have to have faith in human nature and you have to have confidence that there is this kernel of morality in everyone. So that's where I feel... That's the, the, the radical divide between my mother and my father is very true. It was exactly on that. And I think it reflected on their political convictions. But that's why, ultimately, I think I was at that basic level more on my father's side than on my mother's side. Your book's been acclaimed. Uh, a lot of awards. It got a great review in the New York Times this morning. Uh, are you going to be able to go back to your rather boring academic work, Leah? I don't know. I mean, uh, I like to think... Because it's so well written. I, when I read the book, I was thinking, you know, it's going to be boring and academic, but it's anything but that. You've, yeah, you've got no, your real calling now. You'll have to write some more, maybe a book on your mother. Yeah, I'm hoping. I mean, so my next project is, is a book on my grandmother, actually, and on her life in this transition. On your mother, on your old... father's mother. Yeah, exactly, yeah. The so one you this... dedicate the book to. That's right, yeah, yeah. Who lives Salonica. through this the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and Salonika and the interwar period and then ended yeah. up in this uh, hardship in, in communist Albania. I think she had an interesting life, but also was an incredible character in terms of her resilience and her capacity for morality, regardless of all these different uh, troubles and traumas that she actually experienced in her life. So I don't know what the next project is. This is something I'm thinking about, but I like to think of my academic work as supporting this, even though it's probably not, I don't know if I'll go back to writing academic articles or in an academic mode. I think there's I something to learn. Uh, I, I mean, your grandmother sounds like she could have walked out of Mark Mazawa's wonderful book on Salonika. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. So Leah, congratulations again on the book. It's really a wonderful book. It's one of the best books I've read um, Thank you. For a, for a while. Free, a child and a country at the end of history. Um, you're in Hamburg right now, uh, on academic in, in, in these strange COVID times. In addition to free, what else should people be reading? 
Any other uh, suggestions of books that can stimulate thought? Figure so out those the, chess I, I, moves. I always like to. I always like to talk about Rosa Luxemburg, who you mentioned. And yeah. I think she's definitely an author that is has been neglected for a long time, but I think she's an extremely interesting Marxist. She's very unconventional Marxist, someone who criticized both social democrats and uh, Soviet Marxists. So she had this uh, long debate with Lenin on the Bolshevik Revolution and so on. I think she had she tried to construct a critique of society that was based on the idea of freedom, which is why I was very inspired by her as well in writing the book and I definitely recommend her political writings and if people are feeling really brave they could read The Accumulation of Capital which has really interesting things to say about imperialism, about globalization, about underdevelopment and the way in which you know rich and poor countries compete for resources which I think is also very insightful in terms of in times of climate change and, and, and crisis and so on. So that's definitely one. And then the other one I, I, I read and enjoyed recently is Vetlana Alexievich, Secondhand Time which talks about this, again, transition from the Soviet Union, in this case, from socialism to, to liberalism. And then if you've enjoyed free and want to read more Albanian authors, this year was the 50th year of uh, Ismail Kadare's amazing novel, Chronicle in Stone, which is also written from the point of view of a child, but talks about this transition from uh, fascism and the Jirokastral um, town in the south of Albania under fascist rule and how it goes through uh, these different experiences of occupation, first by the fascists and the Greeks and the Nazis. And it's also a really, really interesting book. So, which Good would stuff. More... I would say also with uh, Luxembourg, uh, Nettle's biography, there was a woman there too, a very complicated, interesting woman. Uh, her. Yeah. His Absolutely. biography, I think it's J.P. Nettle of, of yeah, 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 yeah. That's one of the classic, big, thick uh, book, but very interesting, which talks about her personal life as much as her political work. But yeah. well, yeah, real honor to have you on the show again. Congratulations on this wonderful new book, "Free: A Child and a Country at the End of History." It's not North Korea. It's Hodges, Albania. Lots of similarities. Uh, congratulations on the book, and I'd love to have you come back on the show in the not too distant future before you've written your next book to talk perhaps about the next chess move of progressives to take the game to conservatives and perhaps liberals. Leah, congratulations again, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.